Oh, come all ye faithful, and welcome to the Health and Safety Law Report. I'm Doug Jenks. I'm Abby White. So we've got great big news for everybody on the COVID front. As you might know, enforcement of OSHA's COVID-19 emergency temporary standard had been delayed while its legality has been challenged or is being challenged. First, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals issued a stay, and then through a kind of a strange mechanism, uh, through a lottery system, the case was then moved to the Sixth Circuit down in, uh, in our backyard here in, uh, in Cincinnati. And the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals on Friday, December 17th, lifted that stay. And so what that means is that OSHA can now move forward with enforcing that emergency temporary standard. Now, my understanding is that the challenge to the emergency temporary standard, at least the merits of it, is still going to proceed. There's also an appeal to the Supreme Court regarding the stay. But as of right now, and today is today's the first day of winter, if I'm not mistaken, uh, December 21st, this standard is, um, is not stayed and employers are need to be implementing processes and procedures to uh, follow these standards and be compliant with these standards right away. Right. So OSHA has said that they are not going to issue citations for noncompliance with requirements of the ETS before January 10th. And after January 10th, they won't issue citations for the testing piece of it, the weekly testing portion of the ETS before February 9th. So you will have between January 10th and February 9th to come into full compliance with the requirement that employees either be fully vaccinated or um, submit weekly tests. But you have to show that you are making a good faith effort to uh, implement those procedures and have them completely implemented by February 9th. So if OSHA shows up at your door on January 12th, and they want to see your written COVID plan, and they want to know what you're doing to comply with the emergency temporary standard, I guess you had better have a written plan and you had better be making some good progress towards compliance. Otherwise, they could cite you. But if they do find that you are making a good faith effort to be fully compliant, they're not going to start issuing citations until February 9th, right? Or after February 9th. And then after that date, it doesn't matter whether you're making a good faith effort or trying hard or not or whatever. If you're not compliant, then you could be cited under the emergency temporary standard. standard. And we're talking about a serious citation, which is going to be over $13,000. Yes. Yes, that is true. For each one. Yep. Yeah. So I would say by January 10th, you at a minimum would need to have your written program in place, have your training done because there's a training component to this. Make sure your unvaccinated employees are wearing their masks um, and and do all of those things um, and then be working toward a solution for um, your testing, your weekly testing and or getting everybody vaccinated. 
So if an employer is just totally lost and not sure at all what to do first, I think the maybe the best thing to do would be to go to the OSHA.gov website and look for the uh, look for the templates for the written COVID-19 safety policy. They do have templates available on the website and that would be a a good help to get you oriented in terms of what it is that you need to be doing. Actually, maybe I should back up and say the first thing you should do as an employer is read this, read the emergency temporary standard. And it is available on uh, at OSHA.gov. And you're going to see that you must have a written plan. And as I mentioned, there are examples or sample templates that you can download from OSHA, uh, from OSHA.gov. And those would help you help orient you to the task that is before you. So that might be a good first and second step, we'll say. Yes, I agree. And also add to that, uh, part of that is going to be figuring out which of your uh, employees in your workforce are fully vaccinated and who is not. Because that could be a project in and of itself. Yeah, and that's just obviously a critical part of this. Yes. I mean, I remember four or five months ago wondering, whether employers were going to have the guts to demand that information from their employees, well, right. now you you are given the courage by OSHA. <laughs> they are demanding that you do it. If you have 100 or more employees, that's something we right. need to make sure that we reiterate. This does apply to employee employers with 100 or more employees, and they're counting that company-wide, not per establishments. You know, I think a lot of people find this somewhat frustrating because COVID and the numbers of COVID cases keeps rising and falling. And just a few weeks ago, they seem to be falling. And we, uh, but then, you know, say a couple months before that, they started to climb with the Delta variant. And then just recently, it looked like maybe we were getting over the, the Delta variant, in which case it would be harder for OSHA to make the case that there is some grave danger at the work um, that is uh, presented to employees at, at work. But now that we have the Omicron variant raging, uh, at least apparently here in Ohio and across, I guess, much of the United States, this makes it easier for OSHA and those who are proponents of the emergency temporary standard to make the argument that there is a grave danger that compels the implementation of this emergency temporary standard. And what's even more frustrating is that given another six weeks and Omicron will probably be behind us, things will start looking good again, only to be faced with, you know, Theta or Zebulon, Theta. Or Zeta <laughs> or whatever, whatever, whatever scary Greek letters lurk and the latter half of the Greek alphabet. Very true. We don't know what's coming down the pike, but I think that actually is an argument that perhaps cuts both ways because Omicron is not as, I guess they're saying that it's not as severe. It's not, not causing cases that are as severe as Delta was causing. So I don't know. I mean, does that help the argument that this is an emergency or not? Right. I don't know. I mean, I hope you're right. I, I hope, hope it's so true. I mean, I'm hearing that Omicron is a lot more infectious. True. Yes. Spreads more easily and more people are getting it. And I'll tell you what, 
like I know a lot of people who have or had COVID more than ever before. Yeah. Yeah. It is all around us. It's everywhere, man. Yeah. All right. So I think that's all we've got for you on this. Sound good? Yeah. I think we're good. Just stay tuned to the health and safety law report because as things change with the OSHA emergency temporary standard, we will come back to you. And someday, I promise, I hope, we will talk about something other than uh, just, uh, just COVID. Okay, at this point, we're going to switch gears. We are very lucky to have a guest on the Health and Safety Law Report today. It's our pleasure to occasionally bring guests on to bring some expertise that Abby or I might not have. Uh, And it also gives you all an opportunity to listen to somebody other than us. And today's guest is a very interesting guest, unlike any we've had before, uh, because as you will hear, he brings an international perspective to health and safety. Let's let it roll. a very special guest joining us today, all the way from Edmonton, Canada. His name is Dave Farrow. Dave is an occupational health and safety consultant, providing safety consulting and training services across Western Canada and internationally. He supports businesses large and small across a wide variety of industries, including oil and even some nickel mining. He has been in the business of safety for more than 25 years, and he is a Canadian registered safety professional holding an occupational health and safety certificate from the University of Alberta. Uh, Dave is also registered as an emergency medical responder. He is a certified firearms safety trainer, but that isn't all. Dave also has a degree in theology. Am I right, Dave? (laughs) You are correct. Yes, that was more personal interest than (laughs) work-related. From uh, It's from a seminary, is it not? It is, yes. Okay. And your hobbies also include Latin ballroom dancing? Yes, that is correct. Yep. All right. Well, that's very exciting. We're happy to have you. Uh, Welcome to the Health and Safety Law Report. Um, And we're hoping today you can give us a cross-border perspective on some safety and health issues. So why don't we start with you, Dave? What got you into safety as an occupation? Well, that was uh, some time ago. So uh, basically, I got into the business a little bit inadvertently. Um, If we go back to 1995, I was uh, married for two years, and uh, my wife was expecting my first. I was pursuing an ambulance career, and I'd worked part-time as an armed guard for an armored car company. And uh, when the baby was on the way, I went back to do some restaurant work like I did in university. So I'd get up in the morning trying to figure out which of the three uniforms I wanted to put on for the day. So I'd finally decided that... uh, I could probably go back into construction. My father was a carpenter and I'd apprenticed under him. And uh, when I went in and talked to uh, one company, they said that they were looking for someone to do safety and first aid on uh, a high level bridge rehabilitation project here. And uh, they saw the EMR on my uh, resume, essentially. So they offered me the job and suddenly I was doing it. Before they'd mentioned that to me, I did not actually know that safety was even a career, to be quite honest with you. So it was a bit of a bit of a surprise. I was suddenly doing it. Uh, happily, once I got in there, the corporate safety person for the company found out that I was working on the job, came out, gave me a little bit of advice as to where to go and get some further education. So that's when I went to the University of Alberta and got the OHS cert. 
And uh, I also went to the Alberta Construction Safety Association at the time and got the construction safety officer designation. And then pretty much never looked back. That was the start of a new career. Hey, Dave, I wonder if you might just tell us what is, what is your consulting occupation look like? You know, it can be quite the mix. So I have some larger clients I work for that will sometimes want me physically out on a project. So I could be there for months or even years, depending on the complexity. And usually in that capacity, I would be managing a team of safety professionals and we'd be basically looking after all aspects of the job. So we would write the procedures. We would uh, make sure that everything was audited. We would make sure that uh, everything was compliant. And we do a lot of field checks and hazard assessments. Sometimes from the office here, I'll get into rewriting procedures and programs for companies that are uh, not even Edmonton-based. So I've done that for some international firms. And occasionally, uh, I'm needed to help with some proposal writing. So for example, I recently did one for a job in Sweden, where they wanted me to help them with the safety section of the uh, the whole proposal. So a bit of a mix. And um one group that I really like working with is there are a few small contractors here in Edmonton. So these would be home builders and uh, so on, small electrical companies. And uh, they're kind of fun to work with because you work directly with the owner. And often they're very motivated in getting themselves compliance and they want a safety manual. They want uh, to make sure that they're doing all the due diligence. And uh, they're just kind of fun to work with. So I enjoy that quite a bit. Now, in the United States, we... Uh deal with OSHA and OSHA sort of the 900 pound gorilla in the safety room. And I wonder if you could tell us about uh, whether other countries like Canada or Sweden or other countries where you've worked, if they have a similar uh, agency that is responsible for health and safety like OSHA. Uh, Yes. And, uh, and kind of no. OSHA is an interesting thing that you mentioned the 900 pound gorilla, because actually we feel that here in Northern Alberta, there's a lot of U S companies historically that have invested in the oil sands and come up and worked here. So a lot of the standards follow and a lot of companies work on both sides of the border. So there's a bit of a cross pollination of ideas. So Canada specifically, um, we're a bit of a patchwork. We actually have, um, 14 jurisdictions here. So we have federal regulations, we have 10 provincial and three territorials. In general, you're bound by the territorial legislation that you have, but on occasion, you'll be bound by federal. So things like uh, industries like airports, airlines, banks, highway transport, pipelines, and in a lot of cases, uh, work on indigenous communities will fall under the federal. Is that because it's like interstate commerce? Yeah, interstate commerce, and some of it might be a, a little bit random <laughs> or historically, but that's the way it's sort of set up. So most often, if you're in Alberta, you'll fall under the Alberta regs, for example, but on occasion, you'll follow the federal ones. So you, there's some slight differences and nuances between them. So it's always good to know which one you fall under. Or if you're an industry that uh, works multi-province, you'll often try to look at them all at once and take the highest standard of all and then not have to worry about what province you're working in. And so do those different systems have their own enforcement agencies? They do. Yeah. Like in Alberta, we have, uh, you know, occupational health and safety and uh, it's arm's length from the WCB or the workers' compensation board and some other provinces like British Columbia, they're combined. So each province is kind of free to do their own thing because it's provincial jurisdiction. 
And then do they send out inspectors and do they issue citations? They will, yes. And uh, again, there are some provincial differences. So British Columbia, for example, you would be more likely to see uh, fines issued to an individual worker than you would in Alberta. Alberta kind of uh, looks more to enforcement on the companies themselves. So a little bit of a different philosophy between the two. I'm going to ask you about that, Dave, because in the United States, OSHA, whether it's a fe- the federal OSHA or the state OSHA programs, um, they, they pretty much place responsibility for safety on the employers. And um, employees, no matter how careless or reckless or negligent their behavior on the job, employers are responsible for any accident that might happen as a result. And so I'm interested in what you said about employees receiving citations in Canada. Does, does Canada place responsibility on employees, it sounds like? Um, in some jurisdictions. <laughs> Again, we have many jurisdictions. So okay. yes, um, in some cases, you will get a fine for not wearing your seatbelt and your heavy equipment in Canada. So it uh, sounds like it might be a little bit of a different system. Ultimately, the employers are always held responsible. They're held to a higher standard, but there is the possibility of individual fines as well. Interesting. So of the jurisdictions that would um, potentially hold an employee responsible for their own safety, what kinds of things would an employee be, um, I guess, required to do? Or what, what are some examples of that? Oh, they are usually pretty simple. Like it would be the seatbelt example or the personal protective equipment or making sure that you are tied off in a fall protection situation. And in some cases, both the employee and the company could receive uh, a citation. Okay. What do you think about that approach? Is that an effective approach? You know, I've uh, just like everything else, I have mixed feelings about it. There's pros and cons to everything. I guess the, uh, the mixed approach one of the pros would be from a, you know, a moral standpoint, everybody really does have the ability to influence workplace safety and their actions can affect outcomes. So everybody should have some skin in the game. I think you should be responsible for the actions. Uh, When it comes to workers, I really feel that workers are generally competent. They are generally reasonable people and uh, we should expect them to execute duties in a reasonable manner. I guess the other side of that whole question is uh, there are times when workers are just simply not empowered to make decisions or uh, not empowered to act in the manner that they would like to, or even pressured to take shortcuts. There always will be a bit of a power imbalance when we're talking about uh, companies versus workers, right? The person who signs the paycheck generally has more power. It's just the way it is. So it does make more sense in my mind that the employer be more responsible or uh, at least the primary person responsible. I think that our audience is mostly, well, it is, it's mostly United States. We have people who listen around the world, but I'm pretty sure those are VPNs because I, I, I don't think that we have a lot of listeners in Latvia or in, you know, Minsk and, and so on. I'm pretty sure that's people who are using, yeah, people who are <laughs> yeah. using VPNs. So <laughs> most of our listeners are from the United States and I think that um, they will find uh, this to be very interesting. And, and I appreciated the perspective and, and I've always wanted to know about Canada holding res- uh, employees responsible for safety violations. So it was good to have a, the first ever explanation of that. Yeah. And you won't see it very often. Uh, you know, most of the time you'll see uh, more of a warning system or, uh, 
you know, typically, at least in Alberta here, traditionally OHS likes to work with employers and work with workers and they'll talk first. It's when they don't get a response or they, the people aren't responsive and they have to come back two or three times that they start to uh, be uh, more uh, emphatic, if you will. <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I can see that. I would think, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I would think that it would help to give safety programs more teeth if employees knew that not only the employer could discipline them, but also the government could potentially. Yeah. You know, it's, I, I sort of like the system. Uh, you know, anybody who can drive a car certainly knows you can get a speeding ticket. So right. if everybody on the job site knows you have to tie off on the roof and you choose not to, you know, if the employer didn't supply the gear, well, that's all in the employer. If it's supplied and you didn't put it on, well, it's probably on you and the employer for not enforcing, you know, so. Yeah. Dave, I've heard some safety professionals evangelizing about the great benefits of having a strong uh, safety program. And one of the things that they uh, say is that it can uh, help a company not just save money, but it can also help the bottom line and, and result in revenue growth. And I wondered if that's a concept that you're familiar with in Canada or in your um, travels and, and work across, um, uh, across Europe and the United States and Canada. Sure. Yeah, definitely. That's something that safety people like to talk about. And uh, it is true in some respects. So there are some things that are actually quite obvious in terms of cost savings, especially when we start preventing things like property damage, right? Property damage to equipment is very easy to quantify. You get the repair bill, you know exactly what it is. And uh, if you can imagine you have a key piece of equipment and it's down for a while, especially in some jobs that we do in Canada where it's fly-in only or boat-in only, you could be two weeks for the next piece of equipment. Uh, work in the Arctic would be very much like that, you know, where it costs $10,000 to fly a bolt up. <laughs> wow, yeah. So it could be a big problem for you if you're not paying attention to that. As far as the injury side, uh, WCB would be an obvious one. If you are a, a good player, you could see yourself getting a 40% discount or more on your WCB. And if you're a negative player, you could see yourself getting 40% surcharges quite easily here. You're talking about so your workers' comp premiums? Workers' compensation premiums, yeah. Okay. And that'll vary from province to province. So reduced injuries will reduce your WCB rates. And you could say the same thing with employees as you would with equipment. Uh, you know, if you lose a key employee or you have someone that can't work or they can't work to full capacity, there's a big cost to that. It could really hurt your productivity, especially when you're talking about workers that are specialized and specialized skills. So does uh, Canada have a state system for workers' comp? Yes, it would be handled provincially. Yep. So it'd be, I'm sure, pretty similar to what you folks would have. It's a no-fault insurance. So right. it's it kicks into play no matter what the circumstances. So in Ohio, which is where we are, we have sort of a single payer state workers comp uh, insurer. Uh, and it sounds like that's what you're saying you'll find in Canada as well, as opposed to exactly. private and as opposed to private insurers for workers comp. Right. No, it always goes through the, uh, the, the workers compensation system. In fact, if you do decide you're going to pay the workers directly, the workers' compensation system, at least in Alberta, will reimburse you. <laughs> so they will absolutely take responsibility for it. There's no getting around it. Wow. Okay. And that's an obvious way that you're going to save money uh, by having a robust safety um, program through your workers' comp premiums. 
and also right. the productivity, which you mentioned, which is huge. Oh, absolutely. Do um, employers in Canada participate in any sort of um, safety vetting websites like ISNet World or um, things like that, where they, you know, submit their safety program and they have to achieve a certain ranking or score? Um, and then obviously bid when they bid jobs, that becomes a factor in whether they uh, win the bid for the work. Oh, absolutely. Uh, in fact, uh, ISNet World is very prevalent up here. We, uh, most of our big companies will, uh, are utilizing that. So I've had some experience with ISNet. And uh, even companies that aren't on ISNet, they certainly would be with somebody else or they would have their own internal sort of a vetting system that would look at the, their safety manual and their statistics and their workers' compensation rates and so on. Again, we'd be talking about large players that are you know, industrial, commercial. The small home builders and so on would typically not participate in something like that. Now, what they would have for the smaller folks is the Alberta Construction Safety Association, if we're talking construction, has a certificate of recognition program where you would uh, have someone come out, audit your program, audit your performance, and if you meet the standard, you get your core. And that would result in uh, more bidding opportunities and WCB discounts as well. I, I find that programs like ISNet World can be overwhelming for some employers, um, particularly smaller employers. They don't usually tend to participate in those, but I, I, compliance and meeting all of the requirements for those um, types of vetting places are, are burdensome and they change pretty frequently. Um, and so I, I often um, get questions from employers asking, well, you know, is it better for me to have um, a really big, complicated safety program that checks all the boxes, or is it better for me to just have a simple program that I can use in the field that my employees can read and understand? And I guess my question is, what's your take on that? Hmm. That's a, an interesting one, right? The, uh, a lot of it is going to depend on your company size and where you're bidding. If you're bidding to some of the big industrial sites, you will need uh, a program that meets uh, their stated standards. So in, in ISNet, for example, right? You, if your client says you need to have ISNet, you will have to do that. My, uh, my preference is, um, I think the simpler, the better when it comes to programs. And uh, you can make an ISNet uh, compatible program that's fairly simple. There's maybe a couple of principles to watch. You have to remember your audience, right? You don't want to be writing a uh, safety procedure at a very high level uh, that's uh, going to be 50 pages long when a five-page one will do. Uh, what I really like to see in a procedure is, or a safe work practice is to have it only a page or two, and then your foreman can take it out. And once uh, every week, they can pick a new one and make it part of their weekly safety meeting and make it part of their education. So you, you have to make it very usable. If it's complicated, people just simply won't read it. I agree. I absolutely agree with that. I see some safety programs that are four or 500 pages long, and I think nobody's read this. There's no way somebody's read this. I mean, maybe, maybe the safety guys read it, but there's no way the people that actually need to know what's going on are knowing what's in that thing. You couldn't even and, uh, carry that around. Right. <laughs> you have to read the ergonomic section before you pick the binder. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> So what are the, if you had a top three list, a list of top three things that an employer can do to make the biggest, most immediate impact on workplace safety and health, what would you say those three things are? I think the number one one has to be planning. And uh, if you look at a job that's really gone well in terms of safety, in terms of quality, in terms of schedule, in terms of making a lot of money for the employer, planning is always that bottom line. 
and uh, planning affects everything. So to do a, a job uh, well, the, the way I kind of like to look at it is you want to plan the job first and you plan it for maximum efficiency, maximum profitability, best schedule possible. You get that down on paper. And then you're going to have to come back and have a look at your plan in terms of risk assessment. So each little bundle, each task, each section, depending on the size and complexity, you know, you'll break it up appropriately. You need to do a risk assessment and a good quality risk assessment. You know, what could go wrong here? What could be a problem? Where are there opportunities for improvement? And then you use those risk assessments to feed back to your original plan and revise as needed. And uh, if you plan everything well, that's when you start seeing the right equipment on the job. So we have the right size crane. We're not uh, substituting. We're missing something. That's okay. We have a spare. We have a backup. We have a plan, right? Because uh, I find a lot of the biggest mistakes and errors uh, are when we fail to follow our original plan and we start making field changes uh, on the fly, if you will. Yeah. So planning and more planning. <laughs> planning and more so, planning. Yeah. And uh, I guess number two, we could talk hazard assessment. We talked a little bit of, of it in the planning section there. But uh, hazard assessment is incredibly important. It's also legislated here. You are required to do hazard assessments. So not only do you have to do the hazard assessment, but you also have to share all that good information with your people. I find that is a bit of a chronic problem. We do a great procedure, a great hazard assessment, or for that matter, a great investigation with great learnings. And we say, yep, job well done. Give ourselves a pat on the back, put it in the file, and we don't communicate. So communication, I think, is probably an absolute key thing. You can have the best program in the world, but nobody knows about it. It doesn't do you any good. So Dave, the big news here in the United States is that OSHA is implementing an emergency temporary standard with regard to COVID-19 and is requiring employers with a hundred or more employees to vaccinate all those employees or to require them to submit a weekly negative COVID test. Um, and I wondered if um, Canada is taking a similar approach in that they are finding this to be potentially a workplace hazard and expecting employers to address COVID. Mm. All right. So again, each of our 14 jurisdictions can kind of do what they want to do. <laughs> That's part of it. And uh, uh, health and public health is actually a provincial jurisdiction as well. So what Alberta does in terms of Alberta Health Services and Alberta Occupational Health and Safety might look very different than what British Columbia does. So we, we have to take that. So right now, there's uh, at least here in Alberta, there's no mandate that everybody be vaccinated to work. However, some companies are going ahead and doing that where they're requiring a vaccination or requiring vaccination plus uh, people that aren't vaccinated will have to do the negative test. So uh, it really is, uh, well, the way it's being put is it is required that we do something and it's based on the hazard assessment and then guidance from Alberta Health Services. So we will see uh, most of the time it's uh, really in terms of physical distancing, mask wearing, increased cleaning, increased hand hygiene, and uh, cohorting your workers. So the same six people work with the same six people. So if you do have an outbreak, you can contain it. It's a good idea. So those are, sounds like administrative controls, which mm -hmm. are also something that's important here. But in, in, at least in Alberta, you're saying they're not requiring employers to vaccinate the employees. Not at this moment, no. 
again, it's sometimes it really depends on the company, right? If you have an international company, their head office from wherever may mandate it uh, globally, right? And uh, we have some uh, Canadian companies that will mandate it nationally for their own group. But uh, from the letter of the law from the government, that's not required right now. How are the COVID numbers in Canada? Or maybe you want to just speak about Alberta or Edmonton right now. Sure. You know, it's really, it's funny how it varies from province to province because each province took its own kind of a course in how they were going to do it. So Alberta actually has come down from our high and we were doing quite well, but uh, we are seeing a little bit of a spike in the news with the Omicron variant there. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ontario, I know was in the news. They're seeing their number spike as well. It's, uh, I'm sure you're seeing the same thing. It's a little frustrating because if you look at Alberta's graph, it, it peaks and drops, it peaks and drops. And now we, and just when you think you have it under control, something kind of new comes up and uh, makes life a little uh, miserable. Yeah. I mean, we're seeing the same thing here and it's super frustrating. I mean, here we are just a few days away from the holidays and uh, everybody's starting to wonder whether or not that they should be getting together because Omicron is now the number one um, variant here in the United States. And the numbers, at least in Ohio, are very high. And I know that they are in, in other places. And it's just, it's a, it is a whiplash effect seemingly month to month. I'm very happy that I'm not the person responsible for public policy through this whole thing. <laughs> it doesn't seem like it's uh, something you could win at. It's almost like the rules change uh, all the time. And uh, it's just a very moving landscape for sure. Yeah, that's New a variant. very good way to put it. This is not something you could win. <laughs> no, no. Maybe just being you know, a politician it. right now would be very difficult, I'd say. Yeah, I think that's true. I agree. So, Dave, where can people find you if they're interested in learning more about you? Well, there's a couple of things. I suppose the easiest way is just finding me on my website. And uh, it's uh, dfsafety.ca, as in Dave Farrow Safety Limited, so dfsafety.ca. The story there is I actually tried to register, I believe, three different names for my company and uh, was told that they were all too close to something else and they were taken. I finally got frustrated and said, (laughs) call it Dave Farrow Safety Limited. So it looks like I humbly named the company after myself. (laughs) (laughs) Looks like you have a blog too. Do you want to tell us about that? Oh, yeah, we do have a blog. And uh, that was kind of a fun thing we started. So um, sometimes it's me writing and sometimes it's uh, Alyssa. Alyssa is a recent graduate from the University of New Brunswick that works here, and she's uh, a very good writer. So uh, really, it's whatever topic happens to hit us that day. One time I wrote uh, on ethics because I have, I kind of enjoy ethics. It's uh, something I've done as a guest lecturer for a couple of years at Nate, uh, the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology. They have an OHNS diploma program. And uh, the one time I made a kind of a quick and dirty post on how to create your own internal audit system using Excel. And uh, yet I don't mind giving that uh, bit of information away. And hopefully it's helpful to somebody, especially small employers. And we try to talk on some seasonal topics, whatever makes sense at the time. Very good. We, one that I was really happy with recently, we did a little series on post-injury loss reduction. So basically how you can make modified work uh, work for you and how to work with medical professionals and so on. And we had a couple of uh, guest bloggers. So we had an occupational specialist physician and the owner of a physiotherapy clinic and a WCB consultant on that one. So it's all on the website if anyone wants to check it out. Your website's great. I see that you have online courses. Um, So it looks like you can log in and 
sort of take a course or participate in a course virtually? Yes, with uh, COVID, that's actually become quite a bit more popular. So there's a, a lot more virtual courses available out there, including the ones we have on our site. Uh, I would just, uh, anyone who's looking at a virtual course, the only caution I would give them is uh, make sure that whatever company you're working for will accept a virtual course. So in some cases, they're awareness courses. So uh, in Alberta here, we have a lot of sour gas or hydrogen sulfide, H2S. So we do have H2S awareness courses, which are good for learning. But uh, you need to make sure before you pay money to me or somebody else that your employer will accept that because they may want the full-blown H2S Alive where you're in the classroom and put on the Scott Air Packs and so on. So uh, it's just, I hate to see people spend money and then uh, not get what they need. Dave, thank you for your time. Thanks for being our guest today. I appreciate everything you had to say. I think our listeners will also. Thank you. I really appreciate the invitation and I enjoyed uh, having a short chat with both of you. So thank you very much for having me on the show. Well, thank you and happy holidays. You as well. Happy holidays to you. Merry Christmas. Okay, that's a wrap, everybody. Remember, as always, we are lawyers. But we're not your lawyers, at least not while we're on this podcast. Thanks for listening, and we will uh, be back in touch, as always, in the near future. And happy holidays to everybody, and be safe.